As a warning, this episode includes descriptions of violent acts and offensive language. Please be advised. It's June 1964, and roughly a thousand college students from all over the country have volunteered to head down to Mississippi to try to register as many black voters as possible. Those students would do voter registration. They would run freedom schools where they would teach reading, writing, math, black history, black culture, black literature to anyone who wanted to, to attend those schools. They would create freedom cooperatives so black women who were producing home goods would have a place to sell them. They'd create dozens of freedom libraries across the state and establish the Free Southern Theater at Tougaloo College, which traveled the state performing and hosting theater workshops. But before they could do any of those things, they needed training. When Freedom Summer began, they spent two weeks training the young people in Oxford, Ohio, before they let them come to Mississippi. James Cheney was a black man from Meridian, Mississippi. Mickey Schwerner, a Jewish man from New York, were two of the leaders of that training in Oxford, Ohio. And while they're there, they get a phone call that his church has been burned outside of Philadelphia, Mississippi. They decide to leave the training early to go investigate the church burning. They take with them Andy Goodman, one of the Freedom Summer volunteers. He was going to be stationed with them anyways. They're like, we'll take him with us, and they leave. And the first night that they're in Mississippi, they disappear. It's six weeks before their bodies are found. Ultimately, we know that the Mississippi State Sovereignty Commission, which was the state of Mississippi's spy agency, had given the license plate tag number of the car they were driving to the deputy sheriff in Neshoba County, a man named Cecil Price, who was a known Klansman, which is how he knew how to, where to find them. He could track their car, he finds them, he arrests them, and that night he turns them over to some of his fellow Klan members who beat them, shoot them, and bury them under this earthen dam where their bodies will be found six weeks later. This is the Mississippi Freedom Trail podcast, a series where historians and experts help us explore some of the most important events of the state's civil rights movement. You'll also hear the real stories of people who were there and who made a difference, and why what took place then is still so relevant to us today. Robert Luckett is a civil rights historian and director of a Black Studies Museum at Jackson State University in Jackson, Mississippi. Both of his parents were actively involved in the movement. His mother worked for equitable access to healthcare for black mothers and babies, and his father became the first white assistant principal at an all-black high school in Jackson. He says growing up in the 1980s, he knew his experience was different from most other whites and certainly different from his black friends. I can remember I played basketball and my best friend was a young black man and I remember inviting him over to my house and his father having to call my father to make sure that was actually an okay thing to have happen. Is it okay that he comes and that these boys spend time together? And, you know, <laughs> as a child, of course, we know that race and racism are constructed, right? They're invented. And as a child, you're not born understanding conceptions of race. You have to learn them. You learn them from society and you learn them from the people around you. But let's rewind. Between the end of the Civil War and World War II, 
there were more than 4,400 lynchings in the United States. More than 4,400 men, women, and children. The lynchings were violent. They were public, and they were meant to terrorize African Americans. They happened most commonly in the South, but there were also lynchings in Illinois, Indiana, Kansas, Maryland, Missouri, Ohio, Oklahoma, and West Virginia. Mississippi had the most, both as a raw number and per capita. From 1877 to 1950, more than 650 lynchings. The lynchings continued after 1950. The most famous was Emmett Till. The year was 1955. Emmett was 14 years old and living in Chicago when his cousin and best friend, Wheeler Parker, who also lived in Illinois, announced plans to go down and visit their great uncle, Mose Wright, who was a sharecropper and part-time preacher. Emmett had heard Uncle Wright's stories of Mississippi and begged his mother for permission to go along. At first, she resisted. She was very well acclimated to the social codes of Mississippi and the South. Benjamin Salisbury is education director at the Emmett Till Interpretive Center in Sumner, Mississippi. And she was concerned that her son, for whom was not a native of Mississippi, may unfortunately break those codes and knowing that there could be dire ramifications for such, you know, she had her you know, reasons for being fearful of him going to Mississippi, let alone going without her. So she gave him and that talk that a lot of parents give their children especially those as they're transitioning from childhood to adulthood. You know, she did the best she could to kind of give him that crash course on what to do and not do, how to interact with white folks and things of the sort. Emmett and his cousin Wheeler arrive in the small Delta town of Money, Mississippi on August 21st, 1955, to stay with their great uncle. Tensions are already high across the region. Just a few months earlier, the U.S. Supreme Court had unanimously ruled against a separate but equal argument, put forth in the Brown versus the Board of Education of Topeka, meaning schools would have to desegregate. Three days after arriving, Emmett, his cousin, and some other local boys go to Bryant's Grocery and Meat Market to buy candy, and that's where things take a deadly turn. What took place in the store that day is still disputed, but this is the story that Emmett's cousins, Wheeler Parker and Simeon Wright, told. Emmett absolutely whistled at Carolyn Bryant as she walked by after he'd already bought his candy of bubble gum out of the store. So when he whistles, they're petrified. They drive off, believing they're being pursued. They pull over the nearby field. They disperse. When the car that was behind them kept going, they reconvened. Emmett begged his cousins not to tell Uncle Mose because he'd put them on the first train back to Chicago. Four days later, August 28th, at about 2.30 in the morning, Roy Bryant, the husband of Carolyn Bryant, and his brother, J.W. Milam, along with others, come to the home of Mose Wright with flashlights and firearms in hand. They demand to speak to the one that did all the talking. And so, unfortunately, they were able to force Emmett to get out of bed, put on his clothes, and, and follow them to the truck. And after being identified by somebody else that was in the truck, we don't know if that was Carolyn Bryant or not, although most folks believe it was, they drove off with this 14-year-old child in the middle of the night. They allegedly drove Emmett to a barn outside of Drew, Mississippi. What happened inside, no one can prove definitively, but passersby report hearing yelling. A neighbor reports seeing a man washing blood off the truck used to transport Emmett. The local sheriff questioned Roy Bryant and J.W. Milam, who admitted taking Emmett, but said they released him. 
The case caught the attention of Medgar Evers, Mississippi's state field secretary for the NAACP. Evers and another civil rights leader named Amzie Moore disguised themselves as cotton pickers to go out in the fields to find any evidence that might lead to Emmett. Three days after he was kidnapped, Emmett's body was fished out of the Tallahatchie River, swollen and badly beaten. With a gunshot wound to the head, and a 700-pound industrial fan tied around his neck with barbed wire. His face was unrecognizable. Still, Emmett's mother, Mamie Till Bradley, demanded his body be sent back to Chicago for an open casket funeral. And it lays in wake from September 3rd to September 6th, where quite literally about 100,000 people view this child in wake. Also, during this, this funeral and during these services, a reporter from Jet Magazine captures the image of, of this child, you know, this dead, murdered child, which then gets disseminated, you know, in, in Jet Magazine. Images matter. Images can change opinions. That's University of Alabama mass media historian George Daniels. The Black newspaper, The Chicago Defender, also published photos of Emmett's mutilated corpse. There was intense public reaction, both in the U.S. and beyond. We do know that the attention that the U.S. received, because even then we were in a global society, certainly had an impact on how the U.S. overseas was perceived based on how it handled itself during the civil rights movement. Time magazine would later select a photo of Mamie Till Bradley standing over her son's body as one of the 100 most influential images of all time. The magazine wrote, quote, For almost a century, African Americans were lynched with regularity and impunity. Now, thanks to a mother's determination to expose the barbarousness of the crime, the public could no longer pretend to ignore what they couldn't see. Soon, a jury would also be forced to confront the barbarity of the murder. David Jordan was there. Today, he's a Mississippi state senator. But in 1955, Jordan was a 21-year-old college student at Mississippi Valley State University in Itabina, about 45 minutes from Sumner. This professor say, I want you, every student bring a report, read the newspaper on the Emmett Till case. It's the biggest thing going on. So we got out that Wednesday at 11 o'clock. I don't think we had lap that evening. I said, man, let's go to Sumner. So you got any money? I said, I got 50 cents. He said, the oldest driver said, I got 50 cents. So I paid for my brother and myself. We put a dollar worth of gasoline. And we headed for Sumner. I didn't know where Sumner were. Sumner's about one hour north of Jackson and about an hour and a half south of Memphis. In 1955, it had roughly 550 residents. More than half of them were black. But the jury was, not surprisingly, all white. Roy Bryant, the husband of the white woman Emmett Whistledat, and his half-brother J.W. Milam were charged with murder. We walked in, and the place was full of people. They had the funeral home director, Mr. C.A. Miller. He was being interrogated by the cross-examination. I know not what it was, but I didn't understand court procedures. So he had to describe what the body looked like because the rumor was that Emmett Till had been seen in Chicago, and this was just a gimmick of the NAACP to increase their 
membership. And it wasn't much order there because people was just doing pretty well what they wanted to do. Finally, they had a recess. When they had to recess, J.W. Marlow, Roy Bryant's mother, came up and wiping their faces, giving them Coca-Colas, and they was drinking Cokes and just laughing. I could tell that nobody was serious about it, kind of mockery of a trial at that time. And Strider said, and you probably heard this statement. Tallahatchie County Sheriff Clarence Strider. We never have any trouble out of our until they go north. Five days. That's how long the trial lasted. And it only took the all-white, all-male jury 67 minutes to return a verdict of not guilty. One juror said, if we hadn't stopped to drink pop, it wouldn't have taken that long. Looking back on it, I knew they were not serious. But that was my first time in court. I didn't know what they did there. But the way they act were nothing strange to me because I'd seen it all my life. Nobody paid black people any attention on what they said, what we were doing. Nobody cared. Nobody respected what we did. But as far as this trial, it was just a mockery of justice. They didn't intend to do anything. Uh, because they were never serious. And black people would whisper to themselves and some would cry when you talk about it. A year later, Bryant and Milam sold their story to Look Magazine. They admitted to killing Emmett, but because of double jeopardy, they couldn't be tried again. Emmett's murder helped to lead to the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1957. It authorized the U.S. Department of Justice to intervene in local law enforcement issues when individual civil rights were being compromised. A few years later, the world would again be shocked by the high-profile death of Mississippi civil rights leader, Medgar Evers. Evers grew up in Decatur, Mississippi, a small town about 30 miles east of Meridian. Unlike many black families in Mississippi, Evers' parents actually owned the land where they lived, which gave the family a degree of independence. Evers served in the army during World War II. He fought in Normandy and was a part of the famed Red Ball Express truck convoy that supplied Allied forces. It was the first time he experienced life outside segregated Mississippi. But when he returned home in 1946, he was barred from public establishments, didn't get the GI Bill benefits that helped build a solid white middle class, and was denied the right to vote. That, says former Clarion Ledger reporter Jerry Mitchell, is when the civil rights movement really began. I think sometimes people say it began with Brown versus Board of Education in 54, but it really began earlier, which is when these soldiers returned from World War II and they fought for their country and they put their lives on the line. And so they're like, I'm, you know, we're citizens here. We deserve these rights. We fought, we fought and died for these rights. So they went to go vote in the courthouse in Decatur, Mississippi, and they were turned away by white men with guns. On that day in 1946, Medgar Evers vowed to never be whipped again. He joined the fight, eventually rising to become Mississippi's first field secretary for the NAACP. He investigated the Emmett Till case and other unsolved murders of black people across the state. He helped secure the NAACP's legal team 
headed by future Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall, to help force integration at the University of Mississippi. This and other work made Medgar Evers a target of white supremacists, and in 1963, they would take aim. He was assassinated the same night that President Kennedy told the nation that the grandsons of slaves were still not free. It was President Kennedy's first civil rights speech. It happened at his home in Jackson, in the driveway. You know, his family heard him arrive, pull up into the carport, and they had a station wagon that was already parked in the carport, so he's pulled behind that and got out of his Oldsmobile and had his hands full with these T-shirts that said, Jim Crow must go. And so he got out of the car. He took maybe a step or two forward, and he was shot in the back by a guy by the name of Byron De La Beckwith. De La Beckwith had been a Marine during the war and was trained to shoot. He was also a member of the local White Citizens Council, a segregationist group that had an estimated 60,000 members across the South in the mid-1950s. He shot Megger in the back, and then, you know, when Murley heard the shot, you know, she, she and the children both rushed outside, saw the blood, screamed. Rena, who was eight years old at the time, you know, said, Daddy, get up, Daddy, get up, and he never got up. So they rushed him to the hospital, but it was too late. Dela Beckwith was tried twice in 1964 by all white, all male juries. The White Citizens Council paid his legal expenses, and during the second trial, the man who was Mississippi's governor at the time of the assassination shook hands with Dela Beckwith in the courtroom. Both trials ended in hung juries, but decades later, investigative journalist Jerry Mitchell took up the case. Whenever somebody tells me I can't have something, I want it like a million times worse. Remember the Mississippi State Sovereignty Commission, the spy agency that provided the license plate tag number of the three young activists who'd come to Mississippi and ended up dead? Mitchell found out that the commission's records were only sealed for 50 years. And when I found that out, I thought, oh, there is something in there. So I began to develop sources who had access to the files, began to leak me the files. And what they showed was at the same time the state of Mississippi was prosecuting Byron Deal Beckwith for the murder of Meg Revers, this other arm of state, this sovereignty commission with secret assisting defense trying to get Beckwith acquitted, and nobody knew that. So that story ran October 1st of 89. At the time that my story ran, the odds were literally more than a million to one against the case they were being reopened, re-prosecuted. But Merle Evers, the widow of Mega Evers, believed and she prayed and some amazing things happened. A couple months later, Jackson police were cleaning out a closet and found a box that contained the crime photos from Evers' assassination. There was one of Byron de la Beckwith's fingerprint lifted from the murder weapon. And a few months after that, the prosecutor in a case found the murder weapon in his father-in-law's closet which sounds like I'm making it up, but it really did happen. This is why I like nonfiction. <laughs> in 1994, Dela Beckwith was back on trial for the third time in front of a jury of eight black people and four white people. He was convicted and spent the rest of his life in prison. In 2017, the book The Blood of Emmett Till was published. It contained a revelation that sparked a new investigation. Carolyn Bryant Donham, the white woman whom Emmett had whistled at, 
had allegedly recanted testimony she gave in 1955 about Emmett making sexually vulgar comments and physically touching her. There were calls for the case to be reopened, possibly with perjury charges filed against Donham. The U.S. Justice Department opened a new investigation, but in December 2021, it announced it was closing the case because it couldn't corroborate the author's allegation that Donham said she lied on the stand. Taking a pause here to say that if you're interested in following the Mississippi Freedom Trail through places like Neshoba County, Decatur, Jackson, Sumner, Meridian, and elsewhere in the state, go to visit Mississippi.org or CivilRightsTrail.com. It's a great way to begin planning your trip. Okay, back to the story. The church has always figured prominently in the lives of African Americans. Before the Civil War, many enslaved people held secret religious meetings under their enslavers' nose, but far from their eyes. Other enslaved people and free blacks worshipped at biracial churches, where they were required to sit in the back or in special galleries during the service. But after emancipation, blacks pooled their money to purchase land and erect their own church buildings. These were the first institutions fully controlled by African Americans. Churches housed schools and hosted social events. They sponsored fraternal societies and supported political gatherings. Black preachers played a major role in Reconstruction politics. The first African American to serve in either House of Congress was Mississippi's Hiram Rhodes Revels. He was born free in North Carolina and was ordained a minister in the African Methodist Episcopal Church in 1845. He pastored throughout the Midwest and was even arrested in Missouri for, in his words, preaching the Gospels to the Negroes. Revels eventually left the AME Church and joined the Methodist Episcopal Church, leading a congregation in Natchez, Mississippi. In 1870, Revels was elected by a vote of 81 to 15 in the Mississippi legislature to finish the term of one of the state's two seats in the U.S. Senate which had been vacant since the Civil War. He wasn't alone. Throughout the years, black preachers have held political office and led social and political movements. But that also put a target on them and their congregations. Remember James Cheney, Andrew Goodman, and Michael Schwerner, the three young men who were murdered during the Freedom Summer of 64 in Mississippi? They'd planned to set up a freedom school at Mount Zion Methodist Church in Neshoba County, Mississippi. They'd spoken to church leadership about setting up a voter registration drive when members of the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan learned of the plan. They planned their own attack on the congregation. It was that church that burned to the ground a month later, prompting Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner to make the deadly decision to travel from Ohio to Mississippi. From 1950 to 1970, at least 10 black churches were burned to the ground across the Southeast, and the homes of many black preachers were also targeted. But it wasn't just black houses of worship. I do have a strong interest in the way that Jewish immigrants, Jewish migrants, Jewish people that found themselves in the South fit in, or in a few cases didn't fit in, in terms of that sort of white-black binary 
that really defined a lot of life here in different ways in different periods. Josh Parshall is Director of History at the Goldring Woldenberg Institute of Southern Jewish Life in Jackson, Mississippi. In Jackson today, there's a fair amount of modern architecture from the mid-20th century. There are gorgeous mid-century modern homes. Jackson, as much as we think of Mississippi as its poverty, there are also pockets of quite a bit of wealth, and there was an element of sophistication for the upper classes of Jackson. That said, the power structure in Jackson was still very much committed to segregation and white supremacy. There's a lot of writing on Jim Crow segregation, the way that it was implemented, its economic effects, the ways that it affected day-to-day life, the ways that people had to do these sort of performances, both white folks performing their, their dominance and black residents of Mississippi having to constantly sort of reassure white people that they were fine with their place and weren't a threat. That ranged from the way that people addressed each other using ma'am and sir, the ways that white people didn't use the last names oftentimes when referring to African-Americans that they came in contact with, the way that a domestic worker would be, might be referred to as, by their first name or as Miss First Name rather than their last name. It wasn't unusual for children who grew up in homes where there were black women employed as domestic workers, for those children to grow up their whole lives not knowing the last name of the person who took care of them. It was just one more example of how very structured the racial divide was. And Jewish people in the South had to navigate that. On the one hand, they were typically of European descent, so legally white. On the other, Josh Parshall says they were allowed to be part of society as long as they adhered to racial norms. Both in earlier periods and as what we think of as the classical civil rights movement started to emerge, there was pressure on Jewish people not to step out of line on these things, especially as national Jewish organizations gained a reputation for, let's say, racial liberalism. It's at this time Rabbi Perry Nussbaum arrives in Jackson. He was raised in Toronto, Ontario, graduated from the University of Cincinnati, and served pulpits in Australia, Amarillo, Texas, Pueblo, Colorado, Trenton, New Jersey, and several other places. And he had not had a long tenure at any of these congregations because he was a fairly difficult guy. By all accounts, Nussbaum could be overbearing. He didn't manage interpersonal relationships all that well. He had strong ideas about what congregational life should look like, what worship should look like, and he wasn't especially good at compromising. He arrives in Jackson in 1954, just a few months after the Brown versus Board of Education decision, and becomes the voice of Jewry. He came with the expectation of a quiet tenure that would sort of close out his career. There's somewhere, there's this story that, that a colleague of his had encouraged him to take the Jackson job and said, you know, you'll go and you'll sit on a porch and drink sweet tea and everything will be, everything will be pretty easy. But pretty quickly, it wasn't so easy. There's increasing civil rights activity in the state of Mississippi. There's the reactionary counter-movement known as Massive Resistance, which includes violent attacks on civil rights protesters, on organizations or institutions associated with civil rights. And while Nussbaum had attempted to keep a low profile, by the early 60s, he's sort of being pulled into the conflict. Over the summer of 1961, Freedom riders who rode integrated buses into the segregated South started arriving in Jackson. 
that's a part of the freedom ride story that actually gets lost. Brenna Wynne Greer is a historian of race, culture, and gender at Wellesley College. You know, one of the things that's so interesting is there's this long kind of violent and prolonged activity in Alabama, but a lot of the writers are like, oh, yay, now we get to go into Mississippi, which, you know, has this horrific history of treatment of African-Americans. And so when they reach Jackson, they're arrested. The United States, you know, the Kennedy administration makes a deal with local officials in Jackson that says they can arrest them, despite the fact that they are actually not doing anything legally wrong. They can arrest them as long as they'll protect them. You know, if the local officials, state officials will protect the rioters, into Jackson, then they're free to arrest them. And the Freedom Riders are like, great, take us, jail, no bail. The goal was to overwhelm the jails, which they did. So the state transferred them to the notorious Parchman Penitentiary, where they were placed in the maximum security unit and forced to do hard labor. Because several of the Freedom Riders were Jewish, Rabbi Nussbaum was asked to provide chaplain services. It was 260 miles round trip from Jackson to Parchman. He prided himself on providing chaplain services to any Jewish person. He wasn't going to deny them that, even though he personally sort of understood them as outside agitators. He didn't think that these particular protests were especially helpful. He thought it was bringing a lot of of trouble, uh, a lot of tsuras, as you might say in Yiddish, to his local community. So Nussbaum and one other rabbi in the state, Rabbi Charles Manton Band from Hattiesburg, were the only two rabbis in the entire state who agreed to visit the penitentiary and would do so weekly. So he would take letters out, you know, to help these young activists communicate with their families. He would take cigarettes or toiletries or sort of whatever was needed. And he wasn't just communicating with Jewish prisoners. At some point, he also started offering a line of communication to the outside, for other imprisoned activists. He tried to keep it quiet, but soon Nussbaum would start taking more public steps. When the congregation opened a new synagogue in 1967, there were black clergy among the honored guests who were there at the ceremony at which they consecrated the synagogue. The synagogue continued to offer its space to biracial gatherings, which most white religious institutions in the city of Jackson didn't do. There were a handful of white progressive clergy in town besides Rabbi Nussbaum, and a lot of them were run out of town. A lot lost their jobs, but not Nussbaum. It might be that a congregation that dismissed a rabbi for civil rights work would have a little bit of a difficult time finding another rabbi who wanted to fill that pulpit, knowing that they would be subject to that kind of pressure. Still, there was tension. There were those Jackson Jews who really supported Nussbaum, who were fine with having a Jewish face or a Jewish presence out in front on some of these issues. There were Jackson Jews who were strongly opposed to desegregation just as an idea. And there was probably a broad middle ground of Jews in Jackson and in a lot of the South who wanted the problem to go away, who may have understood that desegregation was inevitable, who might have thought that desegregation was ultimately going to be a good thing, but who didn't want the risks associated with having Jewish organizations or Jewish leaders associated with the controversy. Nussbaum was caught in the middle. There was no one incident that made Temple Beth Israel a target. 
there was just a general view in white supremacist circles that the civil rights movement was not just some sort of communist plot, but somehow a Jewish communist plot. There had to be someone behind the curtain pulling the strings. On the night of September 18, 1967, there was an explosion at Temple Beth Israel. No one was in the building when the bomb exploded, but that was just by luck. Two months later, there was a second bombing, this time at Nussbaum's home. He and his wife were there, but neither sustained major injuries. A number of histories paint the bombings at Beth Israel Congregation and at Rabbi Nussbaum's house as kind of a turning point in terms of civil rights in the city of Jackson. At least a segment of the white community viewed this as too much, as too far, as a violation that demanded some sort of attention. So there was a walk of penance following the bombing at Beth Israel that was a recognition that silence by white clergy had played a role in fostering this environment of racial terror, and a number of pastors and ministers participated. In addition to the walk of penance and the public outcry about the synagogue bombing, in 1968, there was a full-page ad in the Clarion Ledger newspaper, which a number of prominent Jackson business people signed on to, demanding an end to white supremacist violence and an end to employment discrimination. That same year, Members of the Ku Klux Klan planted 15 sticks of dynamite next to the education building of Congregation Beth Israel in Meridian, Mississippi. The blast knocked down several walls and caved in part of the roof. A month later, two of the people who'd bombed Congregation Beth Israel attempted to plant 29 sticks of dynamite under Rabbi Meyer Davidson's house. It was the cover story of newspapers all over the country, due in part to who was involved a woman who was a much-beloved elementary school teacher, and a man who'd been in trouble with the law since he was a teenager. The police were tipped off, and when they showed up at the house, a gunfight ensued. The teacher was fatally shot through the neck, and her conspirator was critically wounded, but survived. He was tried, convicted, and sentenced to 30 years at Parchman Penitentiary, but served less than 10 Coming up on the next episode, how civil rights leaders in Mississippi managed to do something that leaders in other parts of the country could not. The Southern Christian Leadership Conference, Dr. King's organization, did not get along with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC. And frankly, the more kind of vibrant leaders of these organizations were often more likely to be in, entangled or in, ensnared in kind of deep conflicts and, and rivalries. Bob Moses wasn't like that at all. And he had this really incredible spirit about him. After listening to the podcast, follow the actual Mississippi Freedom Trail that traces the entire state. Go to visitmississippi.org or civilrightstrail.com where you can begin planning your trip. In this episode, we heard from Jackson State University historian Robert Luckett, Benjamin Salisbury of the Emmett Till Interpretive Center, University of Alabama media historian George Daniels, Mississippi State Senator, and civil rights foot soldier David Jordan. 
Josh Parshall of the Goldring Woldenberg Institute of Southern Jewish Life, Wellesley College historian Brenna Wynne Greer, and investigative reporter Jerry Mitchell. I'm Marlene Gordon. The Mississippi Freedom Trail podcast is sponsored by Visit Mississippi and the U.S. Civil Rights Trail Marketing Alliance. The series was produced by Ingredient Creative with Tanner Latham as executive producer and Tanya Ott as writer and director. Jessica Martinitis was the producer. Elliot Majerzik edited and mixed the sound and Catherine Welch was the researcher.